Our passage this morning is in John's Gospel, the first chapter of John's Gospel. There's a small story toward the end of that first chapter, running from verse 35 all the way down through verse 42. And that's the passage that we'll look at together this morning. Next week, we'll be back in our series on redemptive history, the story of salvation, the story of the Gospel, from the start of Scripture all the way through the end of Scripture. This morning, we're going to continue with another Reformation sermon. It's Reformation Sunday after all. It's the anniversary of Martin Luther, this strange German monk's act of protest, nailing 95 questions for discussion on the church door and sparking a great controversy that reformed the church. Now, I'll tell you this. I think the worst preaching the church does all year is Reformation preaching. So we're going to do it again. Congratulations. It's the worst preaching we do all year on the whole because there are a lot of details that belong to the Reformation, a lot of doctrine, a lot of history, a lot of events to keep track of. And it's almost impossible to keep track of them all and make sense of them. It's incredibly difficult for a hearer to hear a sermon about the Reformation and to pull it all together and to see its importance and its contextualization, its meaning in our time. But it is important to talk about. It is important for us to grapple with. So let's think about it just this way this morning. If you've ever cared about the church and what it means and what it's supposed to do and what it's not supposed to do, then you should care very much about the Reformation, even if you never get all of its details straight. That's what it was about. And for that, there's plenty of us to learn from and grow from as we remember where we came from. We're going to preach this morning about the church, not about the Reformation. We'll preach this morning what the Reformers said and believed about the church. But we're not going to preach about the event of protest itself. Young Christians, young theologians, one thing for you to listen for this morning. John, the cousin of Jesus, calls Jesus a name. What's the name and what does it mean? Listen for that. And you will hear the gospel in that little piece. This is the good news. Strange a story as it may be. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard John say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's pray. Now, Lord Jesus, you are the mighty fortress who holds our hearts and souls in your love and salvation, and you keep them eternally safe. And you've put us within the safety of your church, but help us to understand what it is, what it is not, what it means, what it doesn't mean, 
and allow us to grow in our love for the church, but even more than that, through and beyond that, allow us to grow in our love for you. And if you'll do this, we'll give you thanks. And we ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? In the Gospels, Jesus only uses the word church twice, two times only. Once in Matthew chapter 18, in a conversation about how to interrupt the culture of of accepted sin inside the church. And then once again, Jesus uses the word in Matthew chapter 16, in a conversation with his disciples where Jesus says, Hell doesn't stand a snowball's chance in itself of ever wrecking his church. But that's about it. That's all Jesus ever says about the church. And surprisingly, he doesn't offer up a plan on church planting or a manual for church growth or a philosophy of ministry. Apparently, very little on how to be the church comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. He left that to others. And it's actually his cousin John who trains us for ministry and teaches us how to be the church. Which is surprising in its own right because if anyone were to teach us these things, John the baptizer seems a pretty unlikely candidate. The mad, raving prophet who preferred the wild, desolate, deserted places to upscale neighborhoods. You know, the kinds of neighborhoods that could support a church if you were to plant one there. Not for John. And he wore a hair shirt with a belt instead of fashionable denim and brand names. And you wouldn't see him holding court, staging power meetings in the tonier cafes around town. He had locust legs caught in his teeth and honeycombs stuck in his beard. Word struck, bee stung, sunburnt. John splashed people in rivers while thundering at them to repent, meaning wash yourselves of your filthy, polluting loves and make room for Messiah because God has sent him and he's near. He was fond of calling his audience a snake pit when they came out to hear him. And he even worked his way all the way into the center of the power circles in Jerusalem. And when he got there, he had the nerve to call the king an adulterer and a murderer to his face. Said things like, I like you, Herod. You amuse me. And I'm going to be sorry to see God rain fire down on your head for killing your brother and stealing his wife. If anybody is to teach us about ministry, John's not the guy. John's ministry isn't the kind of ministry that we want to take up. For some reason, there's no explanation of it in the passage. On this occasion, John has come into the city. He's left the desert and he's come into town, but he sticks out. Sort of like Crocodile Dundee in Manhattan. Only time you'll ever hear that reference in a sermon, I guarantee it. 
And John's standing on the street corner with two of his disciples, two young men who help him in his ministry. They line people up out in the desert before sending them out one by one, wading out to meet John knee-deep in the river. And as they stand on the street corner, they see Jesus walking by on his way somewhere else to do something else, and John points him out. And it would have been a celebrity sighting, except for the fact that John's disciples didn't seem to know who Jesus was as he passed by. They didn't recognize him. At one time, Charlie Chaplin was the most famous man in the world. A clown of silent movies. Once he visited his hometown of London, and when word got around that Chaplin had come home, he received 73,000 letters in two days. Two days. But that didn't mean that anyone could spot him on the street. I've told you this story before. He was once on vacation with his family in Monaco and saw posters advertising a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. Perfect, he thought. He got out his tramp suit. Pants too big, coat too small, tie too short. And he waddled down to the village square where the contest was being held. And he stood in a line with all the other contestants, his bowler hat sitting on his curly hair, his mustache whisking back and forth on his lip like a broom. He looked like he'd just walked off a celluloid reel, frame by flickering frame. And Chaplin won third place. Nobody knew who he was. And just because... People have heard all kinds of things about Jesus. That doesn't mean they can pick him out of a lineup. It doesn't mean they can recognize him. Just because your friends and neighbors have heard many different things about Jesus doesn't mean they can find him where he puts himself to be found. John has to say to his own disciples as they're standing there on the street, there he is. The Lamb of God. But it's interesting that John doesn't call him by name. There's Jesus. And John doesn't refer to his relation to Jesus. There goes my cousin. John points to Jesus and makes a statement that has no conversational response. Now, my kids are in the public school in our neighborhood. And we go to school with very likable, very friendly, very loving folks, but many of them are hard-edged skeptics. And it happens to me all the time. We'll be up at the school for some event or some activity, and we'll get to know some of the other parents, and inevitably, I'll be asked the conversation killer. You know the question. Uh, So what is it that you do? And as soon as I answer, you can see people leave. Sometimes they just leave in their eyes. Sometimes, literally, they turn and walk away. And it's all the same. It's all a way of saying, I don't want to talk about this. I don't know how to talk about this. I don't want to know how to talk about this. And even John's disciples don't know how to talk about the Messiah, the one they're supposed to be looking for. But still, John doesn't shy away from making this 
loaded, ultimate theological statement. There's the Lamb of God. There is the one who is your spotless righteousness. There goes the sacrifice on whose head your sins will be heaped. Every last one of them. And that's the work of the church. There is endless ministry to be done just in pointing to the Savior where He gives Himself to be found. Pointing to Jesus in our singing. Pointing to Jesus in our liturgy. Pointing to Jesus in the simple gospel. Dead things made alive by the grace of God's heart poured into yours and giving to you faith. Pointing to Jesus in preaching and reading and hearing Scripture. Pointing to Jesus by taking our turns in worship training down the hall as Jesus stoops low to gather our children to Himself. Pointing to Him as we teach catechism classes on Wednesday evenings or struggle through family worship in our own homes. Pointing to Jesus in the splash of baptism. Pointing to Him in the taste of communion. Pointing to Jesus when we hit rock bottom in our own strength and find His strength to be bottomless when we cry out to Him in prayer. Pointing to Jesus where Christians serve and care for each other, where they repent of their sins, where they wash over one another with His forgiveness. Pointing to Jesus where they bear one another's burdens. It doesn't happen much, it's too inconvenient, but sometimes it does happen. Pointing to Jesus when they get caught up in one another's joys. That happens even less. We're too envious and strangle-hearted. Pointing to Jesus when we evangelize our friends and our family members and our neighbors, saying to them all the things your heart desires and chases after, they're most fully realized in Jesus and you don't even know it. That's the ministry of New St. Peter's. Because that's the ministry that Jesus has given to us. And we may give to ourselves some other ministry. And we may run ourselves ragged with it, convinced of its importance and its legitimacy and its relevance. But the ministry Jesus has given to us is to stand in our city and to stand in our culture and to say, there is the Lamb of God sent to take away sin and make new. But will it work? That's what we want to know. Doing just that, will it work? Listen, I'll tell you, I think the church loves gimmicks because we don't really believe that Jesus is good. The church loves gimmicks because we don't believe that Jesus will be gracious and that he'll do what he has sworn to do. But His grace is as easy to nail down as a Savior who hangs Himself on a cross. And His grace is as hard to hold back as a risen Savior who laughs off death and shrugs off the tomb. Of course it'll work. Of course it'll work. 
And Jesus has no doubt of it, even if you do. And then John shows us not just what ministry looks like, but what successful ministry looks like. Standing on a corner in town, leaning against a building, John says to two of his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God. And when they see Jesus walking past, they both leave John. Can you believe it? John has trained them. They're his interns. What they know about ministry, John has taught them in its entirety. And now they're going off with another. We know this because they tailed Jesus through the streets for a couple of blocks. And Jesus wheels around on them and says, what? What do you want? Why are you following me? And not sure how to answer They try to distract him or put him off the scent a bit. And they say, "Uh, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. But he's not saying to them, come see where I'm lodging. Jesus is saying, come and see if I am who I claim to be. Come and see if you can give your life over to me. Come and see if I can fill it to overflowing. And they go with him. And they don't just spend the afternoon drinking Earl Grey tea and playing dominoes and talking current events, Roman-Israelite relations. They stay over with him. It's late in the day, and they spend the night. And it even goes beyond that. One of these two disciples goes and gets his brother. They go out and they find others to come and follow Jesus. See, this is a long-term move. This is a redirection of their lives and their work. They were John's disciples. They're Jesus' disciples now. I know of no pastor who does ministry like this, whose ministry is designed to lose people, but that's the only way John understood ministry. Wasn't it John who said, I must decrease and he must increase? See, that's not the ministry talk I hear. I hear, Jesus must increase, but he should give me more influence to broker his increase in fame and glory. I'll be his manager. I'll be his handler. I'll be his PR agent. John didn't understand it that way. Later in chapter 3 of this same gospel, more of John's disciples will leave to go with Jesus and others of his followers will come to complain. John, you're going to stand by and do nothing? Put a stop to this. And John says, we can only have those whom the Lord gives to us. See, if John's doing ministry right, he'll lose people. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that New St. Peter's should wither away to nothing. Or that we should put up a ministry designed to drive people out of the doors. We're not trying to shrink to a zero membership. And we have no interest in sparking a Scottish revival. Where instead of gathering and perfecting the elect with joy, we're shrinking ourselves down to a few stern and faithful members. That's not biblical. It's not the gospel. It's not reformed. 
It's really just stupid. Jesus wants this church to grow. Jesus wants this church to flourish. But there's something for us to learn of what the church is to be and to look like from John's bizarre ministry of attrition. And here it is. We are not trying to draw people to ourselves. Ever. There's a very large and prominent church in our city that has launched a massive marketing campaign. You can't have missed it. The billboards line the highways. And they feature very photogenic church members. You know, the kinds of people you would love to see in large format. And underneath their pictures, there is a slogan printed in large letters... I found a church I can believe in. It's clever, but it's wrong. Because if Jesus were to put his church on a billboard, it wouldn't look like that. It wouldn't look like the people we long to be, the people we aspire to be, the people we imagine ourselves to be. A billboard of the church would be an image of all the gold of Fort Knox, stuffed to overflowing into battered, broken down cardboard boxes, tearing and ripping at the seams. Isn't that the picture Paul gives of the church in his letter to the Corinthians? But the problem for the church is, The battered boxes keep trying to pass themselves off as the treasure right down to our pastors. And John never made that mistake. Right up to the moment Herod called for it to be brought in on a silver platter, John never lost his head and tried to make the ministry of the church, the work of the church, something that it wasn't. New St. Peter's can't evangelize to itself. We all evangelize to something. We don't all evangelize to the right thing. And New St. Peter's cannot evangelize to its own membership. We cannot proclaim ourselves. We have to proclaim Jesus. And I can't be the draw. And Colin can't be the draw, and Aaron can't be the draw for anybody. Listen, someday, someday, we may live long enough to see it, we may not. Someday, the American church will grow up and begin to live by faith and not by celebrity. But this is the curse of every pastor. Every pastor, don't ever believe otherwise. If you do, you've been lied to and you've bought it. Every pastor is more or less an egomaniac. And I intellectually know the truth. I'm not the draw. My name can't be dropped. I'm not the one to be quoted. But experientially, I don't believe it. Until I'm given these little epiphanies and I'm allowed just a glimpse of seeing again. Ah, I don't fill your hearts. And our elders... Are our shepherds elected to office? 
and our lay shepherds, the leaders in the congregation who don't hold office, but they have great influence in the gospel among other church members, church family members. And then just good church members in their own right, people who take the membership vows and hold them in their hearts and practice them and live by them. Sheep ministering to other sheep, in other words. Uh, You can't disciple people to yourselves. And if your goal is to make people around you to look like you, you're giving them the wrong object of worship. You're asking them to worship a broken thing. What John teaches us about the church is this. Jesus is our message. Jesus is our vision. Jesus is our purpose. Jesus is our ministry. Jesus is our method. Jesus is our authority. Jesus is our influence. Jesus is our reputation. Jesus has to be explicit in us because He is the best part of us. We don't and can't draw people to ourselves. What draws people is Jesus alive in us. Jesus at work in us. The beauty of Jesus shining through our brokenness. Not Jesus lurking under our charm and appeal and proficiency. And that's the only true success that the church in any and every age has ever had regardless of buildings and budgets and membership. The goal has never been to be a church that people can believe in. The goal has always been to gather as a church and together leave every distraction to follow Jesus. And you know what following Jesus means. You know what it feels like and looks like. But we'll pull it out of the passage just to remind ourselves. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God. A lamb was an animal in Jewish society that didn't have a long life expectancy. Animals bred for sacrifice. There were no retired lambs in all of Israel. And if these two disciples stay with Jesus, you know where he's going to lead them you know where they're going to end up. On a hillside outside the city, looking up at Jesus nailed between crossbeams. And all their wrong views of the kingdom of God are going to be dying there with Jesus. All of their limp expectations for what Jesus must be for them. All of their flimsy and tasteless demands for what Jesus has to do for them in order to love them. All of their narcissistic views of themselves as his followers. How he would give to them the good jobs in his kingdom. The cabinet positions. The positions of luxury and ease and importance and privilege and weight. He needs them, right? He relies on them. Who else would he give these jobs to? All of their imagined outcomes, they all bleed and die and suffocate as Jesus goes short of breath on the cross. And maybe their idols will die with him too. Their folly and their lusts and their immaturities, their excuses and exemptions, their vanities and their pride. Maybe their reliance on some sin they've managed 
and used, which has served them well, but is still toxic to their hearts. After all their years of use, they think they're putting it to good employment, but it's killing them slowly. Maybe that will die with Jesus too. That's what following Jesus looks like. That's what it feels like. Picking up a cross and dying with Him and dying in Him and dying because of Him and calling it, of all things, joy. Because a sacrifice is no ordinary dying. A sacrifice is not a tragic end. It's a comic, unexpected beginning. A sacrifice isn't a death of loss. It's a death to remove deep, long-standing offenses. It's, It's a dying to be reconciled. A dying to be restored. A dying to be recreated. A sacrifice is dying to what's already dead. And it's a rebirth. Being more vital, more truly alive. And these disciples, if they go with Jesus, they won't be left staring up at a blood-painted cross. They'll be pushed into a garden. And they'll gaze into the gaping mouth of a tomb. And they won't be able to make sense of it right away. It'll break on them like the coming dawn. Ah, This is what Jesus means to do with us. He's going to break open the dank, stale tombs of our lives and drag us out and behind the radiant, unpredictable, and brilliant wake of His glory. This is what Jesus does with us. And all of that means this. Busyness and activity and full calendars and well-designed programs and campaigns and a well-articulated mission statement aren't necessarily ministry. And you didn't hear that, so I'm going to say it again. Busyness and activity and full calendars and well-designed programs and campaigns and well-articulated mission statements, vision statements, are not necessarily ministry. But moving back and forth between the cross and the resurrection to be reshaped by them and redefined by them, that is ministry. Dying to what's already dead over and over again so that we can live in Christ's life. That is the church of Jesus, according to John the baptizer. And that's the way John the evangelist wrote it up in his gospel. And Dallas and our neighborhoods and our culture will be all the better for it if we have the faith to be that kind of church. I met Jennifer, my wife, on a blind date buddy of mine in seminary set us up and before either one of us realized what was happening we had this date with a stranger so we each showed up dutifully and politely on the appointed evening none of us expected much it was customarily awkward and then halfway through dinner something changed for me and I knew 
I knew I had to get her attention, and then maybe I could get her heart. But we lived in different cities, hundreds of miles between them. So I couldn't just drop in or ask her out again. And there was an email. Email was a business tool. Nobody had it at home. There were no social network pages to use. Cell phones didn't exist yet. The only cell phones there were were the size of lunchboxes. There were no plans for unlimited texting and unlimited minutes. And long distance was outrageously expensive. So I did the only thing someone in my position could do. I wrote her letters. And she wrote back. We have boxes and boxes and boxes of love letters. And do you know where they are? They're wrapped in plastic, stored in the garage. And we never get them out. Because the goal was never to have boxes and boxes and boxes of love letters. The goal was always to have each other. We could, if we wanted, make a life of reading through the letters and filing them, categorizing them, recategorizing them, annotating, cross-referencing them, quoting, archiving, curating them. But that would be a sad life. We could get lost in our letters. Or we could get lost in one another. The goal of the church was never to tangle people up in the church. The goal of the church, in all that it does, has always and only been to push people to lose themselves in the love-drenched voice of Jesus. To push people to lose themselves in the warmth of His eternal embrace. To push people to lose themselves in the intoxicating kiss of His grace. That's the ministry that doesn't need a lot of explanation. That's the ministry that doesn't need an elaborate write-up in brochures. And that's the ministry that won't ever wear out if you'll take it up. Behold, the Lamb of God, New St. Peter's. There's your ministry. And it is the gospel. Amen. Oh, Lord Jesus, save us from the terrifying mistake that we so often commit, thinking that busyness and activity and more on the calendar is the same as discipleship and growth. Instead of leaving behind the dead things in our hearts, in our lives, through your cross, And coming more alive into the eternal, lasting, far surpassing things of our God through the resurrection of Jesus. That, that is ministry. Now make us the kind of church that believes it. And every time we gather together, we'll do things, we'll put things on the calendar. We'll meet on Sunday mornings and throughout the week. And at various points in between. But every time we're together, formally and informally, 
Make us true ministers of the gospel, pointing one another to the strength and the love and the mercy of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. Because that's where dead hearts are put to death and reborn hearts come alive. And we need it every day. Make us those kinds of disciples and that kind of church. We pray, Lord, that you'd give to us that kind of presence in our city and in our culture. Behold the Lamb of God. Those few words John said, and yet those few words were as strong and as piercing as any others. Give to us the courage and the humility to make our ministry out of this because you have given it. And for all these things, we will give you thanks in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.